0: Welcome to Conversations and Meditations. I'm your host, Virgil Variks. Today is April 28th, 2018 and let's get started with the show. So uh, first thing before we get started and get going, I would like to just make an announcement and uh, let you guys know that um, by the end of next week, so next Saturday around this time, um, the website should be totally up uh, and running, uh, rebuilt from the ground up been working with an artist and um really excited to get some new blog posts out um, and hopefully receive some blog posts from you guys that I could put there and feature up. So uh, that's going to be coming, and it's www.conversationsandmeditations.com. Again, www.conversationsandmeditations.com, and you can expect this by the end of next week. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, so today's show is going to be mostly focused on uh, – Two main things, but I'm going to kind of expand on how these uh, will go forward. So, so uh, the uh, the first thing I want to mention is individualism, and the second thing I also want to mention today is collectivism, and you know the differences between them, why they're at odds with each other historically throughout societies throughout history, why they're at odds with us today in our in our own society in our own on uh, our own lives. So really this podcast is uh is going to be titled uh, individualism versus collectivism and just uh, a clarification and you know an admission of my biases I grew up in a very collectivist type of environment where you know the family unit the family was above the individual and that was supreme and that was you know the most important thing going on so you know gr- I mentioned this in episode 2 growing up and you know finding myself and individuating, I, I uh, started to understand and read a little bit more about individualism and understood the importance of it and why it means so much to me today is because you know, today I consider myself an individualist, a pretty staunch individualist. And the reason it's so important to me today is because it was the foundations. It was the principles. It was the bedrock that helped me develop who I am today, find out you know what I believe, who I am, and what I want to do in the world, you know? And how do I want to make my life meaningful and purposeful? So you know, I just so that's my bias, right? I am an individualist. So when I talk today about collectivism or you know other things associated collective rights, um, collective ownership, any of these types of things that I mentioned today, just know going going in that I have a bias towards individualism because I'm an individualist. So just I want to let you guys know that. So I think um most important thing in the way we usually start this off is by defining what individualism is and uh what it's uh, all about. So uh, this is from Merriam-Webster dictionary. Uh first, um individualism one, a doctrine that inci- that interests of the individual are or ought to be ethically paramount. Also, conduct uh, guided a uh, conduct guided by such a doc- by such a doctrine. Also, the conception um, that also that all values, rights, and duties originate in the individual. Two, a theory maintaining the political and economic independence of the individual, stressing individual initiative, action, interests, also conduct or practice uh, guided by such a theory. And now I'm going to define collectivism. Um, one, a political or economic theory that uh, advocating Collective control, especially over production and distribution, also a system marked by such control. Two, emphasis on collective rather than individual action or identity. So today I don't want to focus on uh, at least not that much on uh, governmental control. rather, I want to focus on societal pressure and you know all the ideologies you know within individualism and collectivism, and just mentioning that, you know these things are mutually exclusive, even though in the ideologies themselves are mutually exclusive. you can't really I don't think you can have, at least in my opinion, I don't think you can have a, a marriage of the two in a way because their fundamentals, their, their foundations are so at odds with each other. Um, so you know, just to start off, all collectives,, um, you know, by their definition, uh, there is an outgroup created by this existence of the collective itself and the outgroup contains everyone else, you know, people who are not uh, affiliated with one or another by anything more than you know being declared a common enemy towards the collective by virtue of not being part of the in-group. So you know, this in history has shown itself from the Nazis to communists to uh, certain political movements today um, that are more authoritarian um, and all the way even before to kingdoms and dynasties uh, in the times of Pharaoh in ancient China. So, you know, before the actual political alignment of these these people in history and all these, it's it's really irrelevant. What's really guiding their their structures of their society uh, is the ideas of individualism and collectivism. So, I would like to give a, a kind of my, my understanding, my personal. I mean, those are the definitions that you know, Merriam Webster has, and kind of. What I think is, is, is really good but I kind of want to give you my point of view and where I'm coming from and, and what I think and you know, I'm going to connect this t- you know, from individualism to the rights that we have as people. So you know, I think individualism considers, individualism considers every human as a sovereign entity who has inalienable, inalienable rights to their life. Uh, this right you know, originates from the, his or her ability to uh, think as a independent rational being. The brain can only belong to one person, you know, the individual. There is no collective mind. There's no such thing as collective thought, really. Consensus and agreements in groups is an average, really, of the thoughts of individuals within a group. We can't think, eat, sleep for another. Um, We inherit the ideas of those who came before us uh, and we build upon them, you know, the ideas and the inventions. You know, an example of this, you know, it's a pretty common example is the wheel, you know, from the wheel to the cart all the way to the new, you know, to the newest spaceships being built, <laughs> you know, to take uh, what Elon Musk is doing today. This has all been a continuation in building upon innovation, ideas, and things that are meaningful. So, um, to our society. So all these innovations that were built on the ideas and averages, you know, of the ideas, uh, of these, of these, of these individuals, you know, who were revolutionary revolutionary enough in their thinking to unknowingly change the world as we know it now, you know, and, and the right, the right to life is the source of you know all these rights, you know, since individualism emphasizes the moral worth of the individual, you know, I have a right to my own life, what, what it's going on with it, what I do with it, the time I spend, who I spend it with. You know, and it, it emphasizes the, the moral worth of the individual. You know, civilized society can only be achieved through the recognition of the rights of these individuals. You know, this means that groups have no rights other than the rights of the group's individual members. Rights aren't for, for groups, but against groups. You know, they're supposed to protect you from the mob, not encourage the mob. Um, so individual rights are a barrier from the mob you know and an individual rights are people's protection from all other people who wish to interfere with their way of life this means that the rights of one person cannot and must not violate the rights of another person so you know this kind of gets into a, a pretty foundational and important thing because if if you think that you know the rights of the collective you know are more important than the rights of the individual. That means that anybody who doesn't agree with the collective, even, you know, small differences, narcissistic differences in in opinions, that person is automatically put into the outgroup. Right? So what can be done? What has to be done with people of the outgroup? You have to shut them up. You have to stop them from talking. You have to stop their influence on themselves and the people around them and their closest, you know, friends and family members. But more importantly, you have to, you have to get to the point, and the point is, and the kind of the contradiction of collectivism, in my opinion, is that collectivism makes an effort to say that, okay, the factors of the individual aren't necessary, you know, the common good of the group or the, you know, or the, the collective it's it's fine so if if a if I disagree which I did with my collective with my group, you know many times I faced you know uh, persecution, and that could be in the form of not taking me seriously, uh, and you know the biggest way i i you know divorced myself from the collective was uh you know my my ethnicity assyrians chaldeans, they're so connected and so intertwined with religion. Faith is such an important thing. You know, being a Catholic is everything that 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 we have as a foundation. I mean, it's 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 why we, as you know, people from my ethnicity, it's why we're around because we stuck together through our faith. The church helped us a lot historically um, in the Middle East um, back when uh, the Ottomans were, you know, so persecuting people. I mean april twenty fourth, was Amer- uh, Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day. But what people also don't know is that the Greeks and the Assyrians, including Chaldeans and Syrianics, were also victims of the, uh, the genocide. And an additional in- – including the Greeks and Assyrians, an additional one million people were killed because of their Christian faith, because they were different, because they were not part of the collective, because they were part of the outgroup. And, you know, this this type of thinking, uh, you can you can really – find its way throughout history and find how it's affected people negatively. And I believe it's affected people more negatively than, than positively. And I'll get to the positive effects of, of collectivism. But yeah, I really want to go really hard on collectivism right now and let you know what I think because you know, when I think of collective groups and collective mindsets and all these different things that are anathema to my principles – I think of people, you know, my ancestors who were, who were, who were rounded up and killed and many of them were crucified because they were not part of the collective, because they were individuals, because, you know, they belonged to a different group, you know, an out group. So this is something we have to think of. This is something we have to really, really, you know, check our assumptions and make sure that, you know, whether I support individualism or whether I support collectivism, what am I really supporting? You know, take it to the logical extreme what if you take logical extreme of collectivism what does that bring i mean for an immigrant like myself the the logical extreme of individualism is the american dream going out there getting an education working hard you know support, you know doing well for your family helping your family out that's what it means you know that's what this country was built on the principles it was built on you know the the classical liberalism from from england um, that this country was built on. And, um, you take other countries that, um, are more collectivist and you just look. You can even do a content analysis of this and look at countries that are more collectivist. Do they have very good human rights, uh, issues? Are they good on those? Do they allow people from different, you know, minorities to be treated well, including women and LGBT, uh, people who are, you know, not have not made any choices to be who they are. You know, if you're in Afghanistan right now, and you are uh, a person who's an LGBT or a woman, you know, the likelihood of you being persecuted is is very, very high, very, very high. And because the culture says, you know, the collective says that these people do not belong here. Thus, we shouldn't treat we should treat them a different way. This is anathema to human rights. To principles that we hold dear as a society, not only as a country, but as as uh, as fellow humans. Because what I think is the right the right path is, you know, do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't stop anybody else from doing what they want to do. As long as nobody gets hurt, I think that's what you know our society should be and originally was stated on. You know, you have your rights, person has their rights. You're allowed to do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't interfere with the rights of another. So you know to kind of to kind of give you um an understanding you know don't don't make the mistake that you know being an individualist means that you have to be completely separated from society and you're like this ralph you know uh, ralph waldo emerson you know or uh, henry uh, david thoreau type of person living in the mountains and just hanging out no that's not what it means um it it means that i think for myself i don't let you know the the group you know Collectively change my mind on things. I let people, individuals change my mind on things. I don't let the pressures of my, of my culture, of my community to change my mind. I let people individually within my culture change my mind, change my opinions. You know, and, you know, when it gets to collectivism, it means really subjugating the individual to a group. You know, what, like I said, whether that's class, you know, like the communists talk about, whether it's race, whether it's the state, You know, collectivism holds that, you know, humans must be chained to the collective good, to the collective thought, to the collective action. You know, what is the common good? Chain yourself to it. That's what it holds. And, you know, in human affairs, the collective, you know, society, the community, the nation, the race, the proletariat, it's a unit of reality for, in some ways, but in a lot of ways, these things are just groups. Or you know, additions of of individuals. So, what is a society? Society is just groups of individuals that were put together, who are living together, who have common interests, common goals, common needs, and who are um, living living together. And there, but they're still individuals. People in societies disagree. People in societies have different thoughts and different opinions on things. It doesn't mean that you know we live in America. Or we live in Iraq or we live in anywhere else that we have to necessarily think one singular way. But what does, what does that, what does that do? What does that, what, when you look at people as a collective, when you look at people as a group and not judge them on the content of their character like Dr. King talked about, what really happens? Well, you can, you can really have a lot of bad things. So this this is how discrimination starts. This is how racism starts by thinking collectively. Why? Okay, so here's here's a prime example. Let's say a person of uh, you know Caucasian ethnicity goes and has an experience with a person of Middle Eastern ethnicity or somebody else, another minority, and let's say it's a negative experience. Let's say the person of Caucasian you know ethnicity now says, "Okay, I'm going to put a collective judgment on every on that person who wronged me." So if the person happened to be Chaldean, like myself. They would automatically say, OK, well, because this one individual from this group treated me this way, therefore, I have to think the group altogether is this way. And that's just – when you hear me say this, your, your head must try to explode right now because it's not true. But that's how bigotry starts. That's how racism starts. That's how hatred against others start by taking you know, a singular experience, a personal experience and extrapolating that to mean reality. That's not how we find what reality is. We use our reasoning, we use our logic, we use evidence to find reality. We don't necessarily use our personal experiences. Our personal experiences might help us, you know, frame things in a certain way and understand us, you know, help us make make, a, make an understanding for people to frame things in a certain way, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's how we get full proof truth. We get truth by testing. We get truth by, you know, hypothesis testing, really, and by regression analysis and ANOVA analysis and all these different statistical methods that gives us answers. And I'll uh, we'll, we'll get into the science of individualism and collectivism a little uh, at the end of the show. But you know, this this it comes down to the nature of culture, really. You know, uh, the idea that you know there's there's multiple ideas about culture. You know, is culture learned? You know, meaning that uh, is culture acquired by learning and experience. You know, is culture shared? Um, people as a member of a group, you know, organization or society—is it a shared culture? You know, is uh, is culture uh, transgenerational? Uh, you know, is culture cumulative, passed down from generation to generation? Um, is culture really symbolic? Is culture based on human capacity to really symbolize things and break these things down? Um, is is culture? You know, pattern, you know, is, is is culture a structure that is integrated and, you know, set up in a certain way or is culture adaptive, you know, um, or, you know, is it is culture based on human capacity to change or adapt, you know, or is it or is it or is it, you know, somewhere in the middle of all these in a or you know, conglomerate of all these? That's that's what we got to get to, you know. So how does culture affect, you know, decision making, you know? How does it affect culture? You know, at the top tippy top level, at the at the biggest companies, at the highest levels of government, all the way to the smallest level of your family unit. How does culture affect uh, management and approaches? And collectivism and individualism is the foundations of a culture. Now we're getting into the culture itself and how this little dichotomy tends to show itself. So, culture affects decision making approaches because you know centralized decision making. Versus decentralized decision making; these are cultural things that, that come from different areas of the world. You know, risk seeking versus risk averse. You know, individual rewards versus group rewards. You know, informal procedures versus um, you know very formal, very uh, up to up to uh, up to uh, codes procedures. Um, low organizational loyalty, high organizational loyalty you know comp- competition is encouraged you know or cooperation is encouraged now this is how it affects decision making this is how it affects management you know whether it's on a on a like i said the corporate level or 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 a, or a um government, governmental level so values so i'm i'm just going to give you some of the things i've i've seen and i've i've kind of i've kind of you know did some some research so i'm going to mention three different areas um, United States, mostly Western Europe, um, Asia, uh, Japan is one of the models, and then you know a conglomerate of Arab countries, and we can talk about the differences. So, for United States, you know, freedom is really important. You know, independence is really in, in, important. Self reliance, equality, individualism, like we talked about, competition, efficiency. You know, time, uh, directedness, being open. Japan, you know, and the, the other Asian, East Asian countries, uh, you know, uh, from what I've from research, you know, belonging, group harmony, you know, collectiveness, um, age seniority. Looking at these things to mean uh, this person should be uh, more treated well or more important, not based on merit necessarily. Group uh, consensus, um, cooperation, you know, patience, uh, go betweens, you know, indirectiveness, um, quality. Um, and for the you know for some of the Arab countries, uh, family security, family harmony, parentalism, you know, age and authority are very highly you know connected. Compromise, you know, compromising is a, is a very big thing rather than uh, cooperating or co- competition. Arab countries tend and Arab you know so, you know uh, social units tend to be more compromising. Um, devotion and this comes from a few different things, uh, historically speaking. Um, in the environment that many of these people lived, devotion to one's faith, devotion is to one religion like I was talking to you about my own culture, um, my own you know, religious minority in the Middle East. Uh, devotion is a big thing and it, it really um, pushes you forward whether that's to a, de- to a deity or whether that's to a familial unit. Um, devotion is very important. Patience, uh, a, a very similar to the East Asian model. They also use patience as well. Indirectedness rather than being direct. Um people in from these countries tend to be very indirect in their approach to solving problems. Um, and also hospitality, that's another thing I've noticed, and another thing I've, you know, I gave ten kind of things and traits that I've values, you know, which are basic convictions that people have regarding what is right and what is wrong, and good and bad, and important and unimportant. Now, these are the values that these areas and these people see. So, you know, the values the value differences and similarities across cultures. You know, the differences is, you know, US values a tactful acquisition of influence. You know, you know, um people who are involved in companies or in, in government in Japan value deference to superiors. Um and when it comes to you know the the you know the way this all is all put together you know some of the similarities that's some of the few different some of the similarities is a strong relationship between you know the values and the success of the uh, the people at the top and the, you know, the personal values that they hold um, you know value patterns also predict the success of a company or the success of a country so these things are kind of kind of interesting and kind of put kind of put it in perspective. Um, but you know the distinction lies really between individualism and collectivism. You know which cultures promote it and which cultures value over the collective values. You know, um, but there is a correlation. There tends to, you know, there's no causation right here, but there is a correlation. Meaning uh, that there's it is connected that individualist cultures, individualist cultures tend to be economically more prosperous and more secure. Collectivist cultures tend to be more economically downtrodden and poor, and but there are many, there are few and far between exceptions. Not that many, <laughs> to, to correct myself, but there's few and far uh, between exceptions to this uh, thing right here. But this is, is very funny because it's also it also is applied on a personal level. Um, that is, one person can be, like I said, you know, I can be my my culture can be collectivist. But I can be an individualist, or vice versa. You know, my culture can be individualist, and I can be a collectivist. Um, That's the only the only way, you know, between the individual and the culture. How this kind of, you know, the pushing against each other. So, like I mentioned earlier, the importance of in and out groups, specifically the members, is what really concerns me with collectivism and its history. So. You know, some, some historical, more historical examples is, you know, in the Soviet Union, um their, their idea through, through communism historically was the, you know, the burgessy, the capitalists were the outgroup and the in-group were the proletariat, the workers of the world. And what this created was uh, a few different things. So this type of idea creates a uh, resentment. A resentment for people you don't even know, a resentment for people you've never met, a resentment for people you've never even t- had a conversation with. So that was – ex- the 20th century is, is full of this stuff. I mentioned the Armenian and, and Assyrian and Greek genocides. I, I mentioned – this was – I'm specifically talking now about you know the USSR and their destruction of the Kulaks who were ethnic Ukrainians who were – they were technically peasants in the Russian empire. But they had some land and they were able to hire one or two people to help work on the land. The the Soviet Union at the time systematically took these people, rounded them up and uh, sent them to the gulags and to Siberia and uh, collectivized their land. This was all because of a giant campaign by the vanguard party or the people in charge of the communist party at the time. Who are pushing this collectivist narrative? And you know, communism is built on collectivism versus you know our, our current system here and other systems in Western Europe that are, are built on uh, you know more individualistic and um, capitalist uh, type of uh, ideas. So, but, but this was their you know idea of how of, of this was their you know take it to the logical extreme of collectivism in in um, the Ottoman Empire. It got you the um, Assyrian, Greek and and, uh, Armenian genocide. Take collectivism to its full extent in the communist nations. uh, You have the Gulag archipelago of of Russia and you have the cultural revolution of Mao which estimates of Russia tend to give it at 30 million people were killed whether it was by starvation through mismanagement or whether it was by – you know, just straight up killing thirty million, and in mao 's um, estimates go up as high as eighty million and uh, not and many of this was because they came into it with the idea that the collective I know what the collective wants, I know what the collective needs, therefore we're going to do it this way and didn't take the individual into into effect didn't take what the individual had to say or what the individual thought, and many of these people who were you know supporting this thought that you know the common good the greater good was what got us to to be to go to the next level you know um so there's a, there's an interesting paper um by uh, this uh cultural psychologist harry Tree Dandas from uh, greece he and you know we talk about collectivism and uh individualism on the societal scale but more on the individual scale how does it really affect a person's view you know how does it change so they say and he did a you know analysis and he found out a few different things so i'm going to go over those real quick and kind of make some comments so marriage tends to shift people towards collectivism the idea itself group memberships tend to shift people towards collectivism age so people over 50 shifts people towards collectivism travel traveling it shifts you towards individualism. Change of residence shifts you towards individualism. Size of the community shifts you towards collectivism. You know, the influence of relatives, that varies. You know, some relatives can, can either po- you know, influence you positively, some relatives can <laughs> influence you negatively. You can have the total opposite reaction. So that's really up there. Um, independence and finances you know, shifts you towards collectivism. Uh, traditional education shifts you, shifts you towards collectivism. Living abroad shifts you toward it towards individualism, um, probably because you're so different in, from the culture that over there, and you're just trying to be you and <laughs> stick to your guns. Um, the next thing is growing up in a large family versus a small family shifts you towards collectivism. The bigger the group, the bigger the in group you live with, you know, at home, um, the more you shift towards this type of mindset. Um, hours of TV viewing per week shifts you towards individualism. That's, that's pretty interesting find. <laughs> I, I had no idea why that would do that, but it's, it's a really interesting find. Um, occupation, either way, depends on the occupation. Some people are more creative der- driven. Uh, those people are the entrepreneurs. Those people are the people, the artists. They are more individualistic, it tends to seem. Um, on average, because Their ideas and their thoughts are so different. Um, And then occupations like working in a factory, which is just as uh, valuable and in some cases more. Um, It it, it tends to make you another one of, you know, you're just another cog in the machine, you know. So that tends to make you think more collectively. Participation in sports in either groups or alone, you know, if you're like a few box, you know, obviously your mentality will, will be a little bit more independent because you only have to rely on yourself in that moment. But if you're part of a basketball team, well, you have, you know, four of the dudes out there to help you out and and guide you and and to tell you what to do and, you know, and, and set up plays. But, you know, another thing we've been seeing recently and something he noticed was people, you know, who, um, play video games or, you know, interact in other type, other types of self play. They also tend to be more individualistic and have more of an uh, more of an individual, individualistic um, traits. You know, and and, I, and the thing is, for individuals, individualism and collectivism are traits. They're they're not you know dimensions that can be exclusively tied to one person. Right? I mean, I can be mostly an individualist, but I still have some familial collectivist things that are still there. Um, and this comes in the microcosm. Uh, because, you know, the economist uh, Milton Friedman said that, you know, people think of America as an individualist, individualistic society, excuse me. But in reality, it's more of a family society. And I think that's a really interesting and very important way to look at it because your family is, whether you love them or hate them, and your family can be many different things. You know, a family can be close friends that you live, you know, in your whole life. A family doesn't necessarily have to be people you are blood related to. So whatever you call your family, whatever you whatever you know as your family, these things are still going to be. That's that's your that's how you do it. That's how you base your your little society. Your internal society is based on that, right? But our our external society is not based on that type of mentality. You can't have that type of mentality to go. Um, so the history of these of these things is is fascinating, and the way the way that. These have kind of interacted throughout history and throughout all these things have really changed, um, my thinking about it. You know, knowing, getting to, you know, to know my, my own, you know, group's history concerning the Armenian, concerning the Armenian and Syrian genocide, getting to know the the history of the world and what horrors that happened in the 20th century. And, you know, when you really study collectivism and it's taken to its logical extremes, you realize that, you know, in, in a lot of cases, there tends to be a, uh, the out-group tends to be always mistreated at the end of the day no matter what. Anytime there's an in-group, an out-group and this is like I said earlier, this is just – this is the way collectivism works. Just by, their, by the value of, their, of, of, of having a collective, there will be an out-group. So, you know, in people that have been ter- determined to be outside of the in-group and therefore each individual is in their own way specific you know in their own specific way problematic you know but, but simply individualism and collectivism are are concepts concerned with determining the most important aspect of society you know individualism points that the rights of the smallest unit of any society the individual person is the most important factor whereas the collectivist is asserting that this is specific defined group or groups take place instead so this kind of comes into uh, mindsets and how this uh, how this cha- how this really warps people's minds. So I mentioned earlier about how collectivism can can lead to to bigotry, how it can lead to to racism, but also it's also interesting. It can also lead to the to a similar effect where if if some let's say I was very collectivist and I dealt with somebody and they were racist towards me and. I put it upon everybody in their group is a racist or everybody in their group doesn't treat people of my ethnicity or of of my you know region of the world doesn't treat us right, then I will go into the world meeting people that I have never met, talking to people that I've never talked, assuming that somewhere deep down inside, they hate me. (laughs) Now, what does this do for our – what does this type of mentality do for our overall well-being? What does it do to our self-esteem? Does, is self-esteem even important? See, self-esteem. People think self-esteem is this silly concept that you know has been talked about for years, and everybody talks about. But real, real self-esteem. That's where it comes down to. Real self-esteem views my, views yourself as a sacred entity. You are a sacred entity because you have the ability to think for yourself. You have the ability to choose. You are free to choose. We're not, you know. We thank God we don't live in some type of society that tells us to to live a certain way and to act a certain way, you know. And, and I fear of a society like this because my ancestors lived in a society like that, and more and more around the world you're seeing, you know, totalitarianism and authoritarianism take hold. So these things are 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 scary to me because of that, you know, and. You know, collectivism, a lot of people like to say, you know, the common good, the collective rights. Rights don't belong to to collectives, to groups. A group has no such right. A man or woman can neither acquire new rights by joining a group or lose new rights that he doesn't or she doesn't possess. The principle of individual rights is the only moral base of all groups and associations. Any group that does not recognize this, association is really, like I said earlier, is a mob. The notion of collective rights, the notion that rights belong to groups and not to individuals means that rights belong to some people but not to others. That states that some people have the right to dispose of other people in the manner they please and that the criteria of such a privileged position consists of numerical super, uh, super superiority. Whether it's numerical super superiority or the whether it's because, you know, I could take this, you know, whether it was whether it was because I've been treated a certain way, where I have now uh, this retributive justice. You know, any society that any society does its right, anything society does is right because society chooses to do it. That notion—that's not a moral principle. That's a negation of, the, of 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 moral principles. That's a negation of of uh, morality from from social issues this is this is how this is this is the road to serfdom how you know to quote uh, fa hayek's book um this is how we go down towards the road to serfdom by thinking this way you know and the tribal notion of the common good you know has served as a moral justification for almost every social system in the world Almost all the tyrannies in history were based upon the common good, quote-unquote. The degree of society's enslavement or freedom depended on, corresponding to the degree of this tribal slogan, this, this tribal idea, whether it was talked about or not talked about, whether it was brought up as something important or whether it was not even discussed. You know, the public interest, common good, is an un, is un, is undefined you know and, and and it's undefined undefinable concept because there is no such entity as the public as the group as the tribe as society it's only a number of individuals that are that make these things up nothing good can come from tribes When I say that, I don't mean that in the literal sense, but I mean that in the, in the mob mentality type of way. Nothing good. Good and value pertain only to a living organism. It doesn't pertain to tribes, to an individual living organism, not to some disembodied uh, thing. You know, Common good, I, I, I just can't stand this because it's been used over and over again to trample people. Whether it's in the name of conservatism, whether it's the name of uh, communism, whether it's in the name of authorita- other types of authorita- authoritarianism like the Nazis and the Ottoman Empire. I mean these – the common good has been used to destroy parts of societies and the most beautiful and different individualistic parts. That's what they destroy. You know, it's, it's, Like I said, it's a meaningless concept unless taken literally in which case the only possible meaning is the sum of all of of the good of all individual people involved that's that's what that's it you know but in that case the concept is meaningless because it's not a moral it's not a moral thing it's not a moral criterion you know it leaves open the question of what is good you know what is the good of an individual and how does one determine it you know if i say the the sum of all the sum of the sum of the good of all the individual people involved is the common good. Then what does it mean for an individual to do good? Nobody's defined this. Nobody's talking about this. You know, society is regarded as something apart, you know common good of a society is regarded as something apart uh, from and superior to the individual goods of its members. It means that the good of some of these people, takes precedence over the good of others. Does that sound like a just world? Does that sound like a fair world to you? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think it sounds like oppression. You know, in Hosfed, you know, his dimensions of culture, he talked about, you know, power distance, you know, to get back a little to the cultural stuff, you know, the extent to which less powerful members of institutions accept that power is distributed unequally. So, the power distance it's usually measured in large or small. Large, you know, countries like India, China, Mexico, South Korea, uh, North Korea, even um, they. What he what he states, Hosfeds stating that you know blindly obey orders of superiors. That's what he's This is the, the way society is structured there, in hierarchical organizational structure. So, for the power distance, that's considered small. So Denmark, Canada, United States. Decentralized decision making. There is no top-down, you know, dictator dic- dictating what people have to do, and the organizational structure is more flat, you know. And uh, also, there's uncertainty avoidance, you know, high or low between this, you know, uh, the extent, which means you know the extent to which people feel threatened by ambiguous situations, you know, high. The high countries would be Germany, Spain. The low countries would be UK, Denmark. And the high – people on the high scale tend you know, have a high need for security, strong belief in experts. People lower on the scale are willing to accept risks, less structuring of activities. So this kind of goes into what I talked about in the second episode by the notion of spontaneous order, that humans are a social animal. This is very true, but the way civilization, the way economies, the way governments come together is through spont. I mean, obviously, nobody is sitting there saying, "Okay, in 1776, America is going to be created." In that same year, Adam Smith is going to write the Wealth of Nations, and America and capitalism are going to be built on the same day. And then, you know, nobody's doing that. These things happen spontaneously. This is the nature of our world. It's spontaneous order. So, you know. When it comes to individualism, uh, versus collectivism again, you know, they talk about the tendency of people to look at themselves and their immediate family only. You know, people will, will make that claim. But, you know, this also is connected, you know, and correlated to strong work, you know, a strong work ethic. Promotions, you know, in society, whether it's governmental or business, are based on and founded, founded on merit. In a collectivist society, it's the tendency of the people to belong to the groups you know, and to uh, to look after each other in exchange for loyalty, not in ex- you know, not because you you want it, because exchange you you hope that the other person reciprocation, reciprocal altruism in a lot of ways. Um, the weaker work ethic they have you know these in these areas they they tend to have a weaker work ethic, and the promotions are based on seniority, how long you've been there, rather than on your merit and how hard you've been pushing yourself in the country or whether it's in a, a company in those countries. <laughs> You know, in the cultural cultural uh, dimensions by uh, Trumpianism, he talked about universalism versus uh, particularism. And universalism is the belief that the idea and practices can be applied everywhere without modification. So, we, the belief that you know the systems we have in our countries can be taken and put across the world, no problems. Um, with little to no modification and particularism is the idea, the belief that, you know, circumstances dictate how ideas and practices should be applied. You know, people refer to pe- people regarding themselves as individuals and people who refer to themselves as part of a group, they're, you know, collectivists. So the the interesting thing here is uh, when it comes to these nations is – you talk about neutral versus effective. So neutral emotions are – I mean they're held in check. So Japan and the United States are very uh, are very much so. Asia and the United States. So emotions are held in check. Emotions – but that's kind of changed a little bit. I could talk a little bit about that. Uh, effective. Uh, emotions are openly and naturally expressed and this is more so in Switzerland, Netherlands, Mexico, um, the other areas uh, in the world that speak the romance languages. Um. And so that's kind of an understanding of neutral versus uh, effective. Um, Specific versus uh, diffuse, specific means in this case, um, individuals have a large public space and a small private space. So that means United States, UK, Switzerland, that's kind of an example of these societies. Diffuse means both public and private space are smaller in size. This goes into some of the more, you know, socialist countries like Venezuela, China, and even some of the smaller uh, liberal democracies like Spain. Um, so achievement uh, and uh, ascription, the way these things are viewed in these nations based on their ideas of collectivism and individualism. Achievement, you know, people are, are accorded status based on how, they, how, they, how well they perform their, their functions, their actions. This is primarily done in the UK and US and Switzerland. Description, you know, this is uh, more done in Venezuela and China. Status is attributed based on who or what the person is in the society, uh, more specifically. Um, but uh, it's ch- this this little thing changes even our our interpretation of time. They talk about, you know, past or present oriented versus future oriented. People who are past or present oriented emphasize the history and. The tradition of the culture. So these are places like Indonesia, Venezuela, Spain, China, um, Iraq, other Arab countries. Um, future-oriented emphasizes the opportunities and limitless scope that any agreement can have that any transaction can have, that any endeavor can have. So you're looking more on Western Europe, you know, UK, Italy, Germany, US. These people even view time in a certain and different way. You know, and uh, in in the U.S. We, we kind of look at things you know sequentially. You know, time is prevalent. People tend to only do one activity at a time. Keep appointments strictly, and prefer to follow plans. You know, versus you know areas like France and, and Mexico, which is synch, uh, synchorinous which means uh, time is prevalent. Um, people tend to. To do more than one activity at, at a time, appointments are approximate and schedules are not in, that important. You know, and um, this kind of this is this affects the environment really in the outer environment where uh, there is a belief in controlling outcomes, which is the inner-directed. We have to control the outcomes. This is the U.S., for example, uh, other Western cultures, um, outer-directed, meaning believing in letting things take their own course. Letting uh, you know, follow God's plan. You know, as some people say, or let let things go as they are. That's more seen in the Arab cultures and Asian cultures around the world, and uh, so that's kind of a an interesting way of how these how these things kind of grew and molded themselves into societies because societal pressures put. Either individualism on you or just – you know, or collectivism on you and only you as an individual can choose what is right for you ironically, right? Um, and the, the last thing I kind of want to end the show on today and uh, I, I told you earlier guys that we're going to be getting into the science part of it and the science of collectivism and individualism. And there is a good amount of science on this stuff, an actual surprising amount of science on this stuff. That I didn't know before actually uh, preparing myself for this show. So the first and most uh, interesting um, outcome that I've, I found is uh, sort of continue on the cultural uh, influences and behavior. You know, um, it, you know, it affects the way we see ourselves, right? You know, it affects the way our, our relationship to our culture. You know, collectivism and individualism It affects our our support, you know, our social support. Um, it affects us. And we have to take that into consideration and see and check our assumptions and see how this fits into our, into our lives. Um, but there was a study from, uh, the APA, the American Psychological Association, that came out in June 14th, 2011, uh, t- uh titled, uh, Money Can't Buy Happiness. Individualism is a stronger predictor of well-being, uh, than health, than wealth, says new study. So, I'll, uh, I'll go over this real quick and give you my thoughts. So, uh, freedom and personal autonomy are more important to people's well-being than money, according to meta-analysis of data collected from 63 countries published by the American Psychological Association. So this is not just America or the West. This is pretty, this is a lot of different countries we're talking about. So while a great deal of the research has been devoted to the predictors of happiness and life satisfaction around the world, you know, researchers at Victoria University of Wellington in, in New Zealand they wanted to know one thing: what is the most important for well-being? And I talk about well-being in my principles in the second episode. Uh, what what is the most important thing to eudaimonia, which is the Greek word for human flourishing, a human well-being? Um, and uh, it seems that providing people with money or providing them with choices and autonomy that was their that was their they were trying to figure out: is it the money, or is it giving people the choices to do what they want to do in their life, the freedom to be individuals, the freedom to To do what they want to do and live the way they want to live and love who they want to love. So the findings uh, provided a new insight into well-being at the societal level. They wrote in the uh, Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, published by the APA, providing individuals with more autonomy appears to be important for reducing negative psychological symptoms relatively independent of wealth. So this is a very interesting point. So regardless of how much money you have in the bank, How much money you got with you right now. If people are able to have more autonomy in their life, it's been proven an important, essential part for reducing negative psychological symptoms. This is more than just politics. This is more than just, you know, philosophy. This is more than just history that that I'm talking about today when it comes to individualism and collectivism. It's really about your flourishing as a person. You're flourishing to do the things you want to do, to get that promotion, to find the person you love, uh, to ask somebody out, to, uh, to start a company, to start a podcast, even maybe even a blog, like I am doing right now. So, this, this is important for us. You know, psychology, the psychologist uh, Ronald Fisher. And uh, Dan Bohr looked at the study involving three different psychological tests, you know, the general health questionnaire, which measures four symptoms of distress, somatic symptoms, anxiety, insomnia, social dysfunction, and severe depression. And the Spielberg State Trade Anxiety Inventory, which tests uh, how respondents feel at a particular moment, and the mollusk burnout inventory, which tests for emotional exhaustion, uh, desperation, uh, lack of personal accomplishment. Altogether, they examined a sample of 420,599 people from 63 countries spanning nearly 40 years. So this is, this has been going on for a while. They combined the results of different studies, noting that their analysis was somewhat unusual and the key variables were collected from different sources and that no single study included two variables that they were considering i.e. wealth individualism, you know, participants only answered questions regarding one of the dependent variables of general health, anxiety, or burnout, not both. So across all three studies and four data sets, we observed, uh, this is what them saying, quote, "Uh, we observed a very consistent and robust finding that societal values of individualism were the best predictors of well-being. Furthermore, if wealth was a significant predictor alone, this effect disappeared when individualism entered. So, this is, uh, in short, they found that money leads to autonomy, right? Having money leads you to be more free in a lot of ways, but it doesn't add to your well-being or happiness. What adds, you know, previous research, you know, showing that higher income, greater individualism, uh, human rights, and societal equality are all associated with high well-being. The effect of money on happiness has been shown to plateau. That is, you know, once people reach a point of being able to meet their basic needs, more money leads to a marginal gains at best, even less well-being as people worry about keeping up with the Joneses. You know, these patterns were mostly confirmed in their fightings. Overall, more autonomy and freedom as indexed by societal level individualism are associated with more well-being. But the road to well-being is a bumpy at times In more traditional and collectivist societies increases individual individualism can uh, be associated with anxiety and lower well-being because of the, the effects of the society bouncing back on you like I faced earlier, like I talked about earlier as well. In more individualistic European countries, in contrast, greater individualism leads to more well-being. So this is a very interesting, very important point. Cultures aren't ready to take in individualism as, as, we would, as fast as we would like them to, at least as I would like them to to find their own you know, meaning in their lives, to find their own purpose. So there doesn't have to be a common good that makes an in-group and an out-group and the people in the out-group have to suffer. You know, these increases in well-being with higher, this is what they're saying, with higher individualism, however, leveled off towards the extreme ends of individualism, indicating that too much autonomy may not be beneficial. But the very strong overall pattern was individualism is associated with better well-being overall, they wrote. This means that in some of the most individualistic societies, such as the United States, the greater independence from family and loved ones appears to go together with increased level of stress and ill-being. So that little end to their thing, extreme individualism, the point that you don't associate pretty much with anybody. You're just a loner, leads to more stress, leads to more ill-being. Like I said, people are an amalgam, you know combination of their of their of their what they live with what they're born with when it comes to their culture and society and they're also a combination of what they've learned you know nurture and nature or a combination of that it's what we take in it's how we take this stuff in and to quickly end the show today i i just want to make the point that i really truly believe that if everybody views themselves as an individual and works to solve the problems in their life, works to make their life better, these people will figure out things that they were never able to figure out before. Now, what do I mean by that? What I I really mean is I truly believe that if you work at making yourself better individually, right, what's the next step from there? You have to do what's in your individual self, you know, self-interest. What's my self-interest? I have to build myself. I have to educate myself. I have to do good things. But what is that? Then I can extrapolate that. Well, okay, if I've built myself, if I got myself to a certain position, I'm now going to help the people that I care about. I'm now going to help the people that I love to help them get to the same position I'm at. And if more of us as individuals make ourselves better, collectively, (laughs) collectively, we can really make the world better because everybody's working in their own way to make their lives better. And the real only common good that I I really believe in is every individual doing what's best for them, figuring out their lives and making their lives better, which will lead to a better world overall. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Oh, look at that car.